So anybody in here ever have any like AutoCAD classes or anything like that? CAD or uh, drafting, anything like that? It's kind of a thing of the past. I don't know if they do them much anymore in school. Might be more like Votech or trade school or something. But what, what, what you're doing when you're, when you're AutoCAD or drafting or something is you're working toward building what? Anybody know? What, what, what's, what's the thing called? Blueprint. My wife, who has had no AutoCAD experience, knew what, what a, she was tracking with me there. A blueprint. What's a blueprint? A blueprint is kind of like the, the very strictest, clearest design showing how a product or a building or something is supposed to be built to exact specifications. Okay? Anybody ever seen a blueprint? Blueprints are really fascinating. I think I might have missed my calling, you know, because I'm like looking up, whoa, this is cool. It's like everything, everything down to the radius of the corners and the depth of the countersink and the screws, everything is shown on that blueprint, and it has to be precise, has to be perfect. That's, what, that's the purpose of the blueprint. It's to show this is what this product or this building or whatever, these are the specifications that it has to meet if it's going to be built, made properly. Uh, working in the mining industry, uh, at the place that I work at, we've got a, a, you probably, most of you probably aren't familiar with what's called a wet disc break, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's discs inside of there that are lubricated in oil that stop a shaft from turning to apply brakes to the, the vehicle that it's on. We've got a print that they designed there at Mankin Equipment that makes that wet break proprietary to them. Nobody else has this design. Nobody else has this specific break. And we've got the print. And all the time from the minds, they're calling and they're asking, do you have a print for this break? Why would they want a print for the break? So they could understand how it works, what's in it, what parts to replace, all that kind of stuff, because it's got breakdown of every, every screw, every spring, every tiny thing that's in it is listed on that print. Why am I talking about this? Like, you've lost me already. So much for hook, right? Like, blueprint, this is boring. Okay. We need a print so that we can know what something is supposed to look like, what it's made out of. You ever try to order a part for your refrigerator without a parts diagram? Forget about it. Okay, but with a print, part 28, that's part number blah, 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 ordered at $628, $30 shipping. We can have it to you in three months. That's how that works. You need a print. You need to know what's in something. You need to know what something's made of so that you can truly understand it and work with it and understand how it works. Now today, we're going to look at a section in Matthew chapter 12 in our journey through the gospel of Matthew that kind of gives us not a specific breakdown necessarily, but a good solid blueprint of who Jesus is, of what his ministry was like, what he would do, who he would be. And it gives us a good solid blueprint for what we should be. So that's our goal today as we look at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 21 today. So if you would please stand again in honor and reverence. We wholeheartedly believe and have cast our very lives on the fact that these are the very words of God. That's why we stand, because this is important. This is holy. It's precious. Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets." A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with your words in front of our eyes, embedded in our hearts, 
And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would speak, be heard, change and convict us, build us up, encourage us, and empower us so that we might go out into the world and live like Jesus lived. Convict sinners. Give new life this morning, God, through the power of your Spirit and your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so like we normally do, we need to look back at what's transpired before today's passage. Uh, A text without a context is a pretext. We should never pull out a verse or a paragraph or even a book of the Bible without the full context of what's going on. So we need to see what's transpired before today's passage before we dig into this passage. But not just the immediate context. I think we've got to go a little further back. We've got to go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel to really set this context today. We haven't mentioned it in a little while, but what have we repeatedly said was Matthew's goal and purpose in writing this gospel? What is he trying to show Jesus is specifically? Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel the son of David who would fulfill the Davidic covenant and reign and rule forever over God's people. Matthew is trying to tell his primarily Jewish readers, he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience, he's trying to convince them that Jesus is in fact their king, their Messiah. And he's laboring to show that Jesus fulfills Scripture, he fulfills prophecies, he's doing things that clearly show that he is the Messiah. And Matthew's done that in a lot of different ways. He has pointed to different prophecies, like being born in Bethlehem, the flight to Egypt and such back at the beginning of the gospel. And sometimes he has shown, a lot of times he's shown Jesus doing messianic type things, healing, delivering, preaching the gospel to the poor. But Through teaching, healing, helping, serving, calling disciples, sending out disciples, and on and on and on, Matthew has been pounding one solid note. Jesus is the King of Israel. Jesus is the King of Israel. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who will reign and rule for eternity over God's kingdom. Now... As we move further into Matthew 12 today, we're going to see a very specific prophecy that points to Jesus as that Messiah. And it's not the specific type in that it tells us what color eyes or what size shoes He was going to wear, but rather it will show some very specific qualities of the capital O one who will carry the mantle of God's anointing, the anointed one and His anointing. That's what the Messiah is. This prophecy will tell us what he will be like and something very important that he will do. And it will serve as a good recap of what we've seen in Jesus up to this point and what we can expect of him moving forward in the gospel. So we'll start with a verse that we covered last week actually, but it's important to cover here to again set the context, which is verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Which again, just breathe that in for a second. We saw last week that Jesus caused quite the ruckus on a Sabbath by proclaiming Himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath after His disciples plucked and ate some grain heads on that Sabbath. Shame on them, the Pharisees said. And He caused a ruckus again when He healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Again, shame on Him, the Pharisees would say. He said it was okay to do good on the Sabbath in response to the Pharisees' question of whether it was legal to heal on the Sabbath. Doesn't it just sound stiff and rigid? Is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. And we saw that those same Pharisees who were irate at all of this got to the point that we just read. Their goal now, their overwhelming desire is to destroy, to kill Jesus. So the opposition, the opposition to Jesus in his ministry is increasing now. There's a building hostility toward him from those religious elites who will not stand idly by while this nobody rabbi from nowhere Nazareth is going to destroy their precious religious system and all that they have worked to build into it. They're not going to stand by and let that happen. So they went out from the synagogue 
They left church and started planning how to kill Jesus. Eh. Let's not do that today, okay? Just, just That's free application point there. Don't, don't plot how to kill Jesus when you leave here today. So they went out from the synagogue where Jesus had just healed a man and put them in their place and they conspired against Jesus on how to destroy him. Now, verses 15 and 16. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So right up front we see that Jesus is aware that these Pharisee, these Pharisee folks were plotting to kill him. He knew it. Jesus knows the thoughts and plans and intentions of people's minds and hearts. And here he knows that the Pharisees are making plans to try to kill him. So what does Jesus do? Well, he stands and fights, right? He contends for the truth, right? He makes posts on Facebook about how mean the Pharisees are, right? There's a little bit. Before Facebook, he didn't even even have Twitter. How do you communicate with people? I mean, he's God in the flesh. And we've seen him stand up to these pigs on a consistent basis, haven't we? Well, actually, we see clearly that it says that he's aware of their plans. And so what does he do? He withdrew from there. We'd kind of like to fight, wouldn't we? We kind of like to argue and bicker with him, wouldn't we? Jesus, at this point, withdraws. He withdraws from there. It's kind of weird, don't you think? Why would Jesus withdraw from an angry crowd who's trying to kill him? Well, because they're an angry crowd who wants to kill him. I mean, that just makes sense, right? Jesus knew that opposition and plots to kill him would surely hinder his ministry And it wasn't his time to die yet. He knew that too. So he withdrew from there. And there, where he withdrew from, would have been the area of Capernaum where he was based and walking around freely previously. He went away from the areas where he had been operating commonly and went out into less populated, lesser traveled areas. He was getting away from the Pharisees, away from the hubbub that was so common to his day-to-day life. Now, was he afraid? No. Jesus was not afraid. He wasn't running out of fear. He's strategically leaving to accomplish the further work that God has sent him to do. Jesus isn't cowering and looking at his guys saying, Guys, we better get out of here. They're they're trying to get me. And if that's the picture you have of Jesus in your mind, a scaredy cat who's running from the Pharisees, get rid of that. He's not afraid. He's God in the flesh. And he knows the plans that are unfolding before him. And he knows that now's not the time or the place to enter into this opposition. There is a time and a place to enter into opposition, and it's not all the time. Jesus is pretty smart. So, he leaves, and he doesn't go alone. It says that many followed him. Well, that, that's kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's kind of common for him. Crowds have followed him for a long time now. The tired, the sick, the outcasts, and of course his disciples who were traveling along with their rabbi, learning from and serving with them. And many followed him. Now what did Jesus do as these folks gathered around him? Look what it says. And he healed them all. What does all mean? It means all, every single one of them who followed him, Jesus healed. Now, can you imagine this crowd? Again, probably overlooked by other people, neglected, rebuked, probably sinners, prostitutes. Kanye. Yeah. And he healed them all. And text says, the text says that it's many who followed him. And he healed them all. What a statement. What an amazing picture of who Jesus is and what his ministry looked like. Those who others didn't care about. Those who were not chosen to be students of the rabbis or members of the upper crust. And they followed Jesus around and are with him out in the remote areas. And Jesus is blessing them with who he is, with his teaching, and by healing them all of the physical maladies that they might have had. Now can you imagine the joy in this group of people? 
It shouldn't be hard. You're like, well, he hasn't healed me of everything. Yes, he has. (laughs) If you are his, he has healed you of everything. To stand in the presence of God himself, to know Jesus for who he was, and to be the direct recipient of his earthly ministry, and that would have been pretty cool. They had to just be beside themselves with joy and expectation. What's he going to do next? Look what he did for me. They must have been just absolutely jazzed to go around and tell everybody what they had seen and heard. This guy, this guy, Jesus, he's the Messiah. This is what we've all waited for. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about this teaching that he's been teaching and showing people who he is. And they must have been planning a powerful Jesus campaign. A crusade to make him known and to make him available to the masses. Jesus was going to take over the world and bring about the eternal reign of God. That's what the Messiah was going to do, right? Jerusalem would rise again. Israel would be the crown jewel of all the earth again. Yes, yes, yes. Let's mobilize the PR machine. Get the word out. And Jesus says, okay, let's do this. I'm your guy. No, not that at all. Look at verse 16. And he ordered them not to make him known. Now what? What's going on here? Why would Jesus say this? Doesn't he want people to know who he is and what he's doing? Well, that's a little bit of a tricky question. We've already seen Jesus saying that not everybody has ears can hear what he's saying, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We've seen him saying that God has hidden what he's doing from the wise and important people who are operating in their Jewish religious system. But that God has revealed these things that God's doing to who Jesus called little children. This revealing and hiding is part of what's causing the mounting tensions between Jesus and his antagonists. So Jesus does want some people knowing. And now be careful. And he does not want others knowing. Now did you hear what I just said? God came to earth as a man and he didn't want to reveal himself to everybody. That seems mean. Doesn't it? I mean if I'm God, I want everybody to know I'm God. But he says here, don't make him known. To his disciples and the crowd around him that have been healed by him and that are following around, Jesus ordered them not to make him known. Now to be clear, this is not Jesus making a polite request. Will you guys please just keep it down? Oh, you know guys, I know, I know. It's not him being this humble brag thing. Be clear, Jesus is not making a polite request. He's authoritatively ordering, which means to forcefully command these people not to make him known. Do not tell people that I'm the Messiah. That's what he's doing. They had seen him, they had heard him, they had been healed by him, and he's ordering them not to tell others about it. Don't tell people who he is. Don't tell people what he's doing. Why? A couple of reasons, I think. Revealing it, spouting it out would just intensify the opposition, which may hinder his ministry further. And doing so, preaching about it, talking about it, telling everybody, would possibly increase the size of the crowds around him, which also might hinder his ministry. And Jesus is revealing what he wants to, to who he wants to. He's the Lord. He can do that. That's what he does. That's what makes him the Lord. When God revealed himself to Moses way back in Exodus, what was part of the glory that was revealed to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's part. God is the only true free will agent in the universe. That's a different message. So he's telling them not to tell people that he's the Messiah. He's commanding them. It's not time for that yet. So shut it down. Recognize it, but don't broadcast it. 
And again, remember, some passages of the Bible are time-specific, y'all. This, this passage is not prescriptive for the followers of Jesus now. It was for these people at this place and time. So don't pattern your life after this time-specific instruction. I'm not going to tell anybody Jesus is Messiah. Jesus will tell His followers to make Him known after His death, burial, and resurrection. But it's not time for that yet here. So the king says, hush. For now. But there is one who is clearly proclaiming who Jesus is and what He's doing and how God Himself sees it. It's a guy well known to the Jews and to those who have spent some time in the Old Testament. It's a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah knows Jesus and His work. And he knew it several hundred years before Jesus came. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Okay, so that's a little bit tricky. This was to fulfill. What was to fulfill? Well, it's directly connected to Jesus having healed all these, following, healed all these people following him and then ordering them not to make him known. That is the this here. You track them with me? Jesus healing all these people, revealing himself to these people, and then telling him not to make them known, that is what this is referring to. So Jesus doing messianic things and telling those that he's doing them to to not make him known is this. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew looks back at the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that is a huge Huge, huge phrase there. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says that Jesus' activities and His ordering His followers not to make Him known fulfills this section of Isaiah. When the Holy Spirit interprets Scripture, we should pay attention. And we should listen to what He says. And that's exactly what's happening here. So I'm going to read this portion of Isaiah's prophecy that Matthew cites in its entirety, verses 18 through 21. And then I'm going to read Isaiah's version in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. I want to read those together so that you can see them. Matthew's passage. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, again, this is taken from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. I want to read that, but I want you to note... Some subtle differences. Matthew is quoting the passage, but in quoting the passage, Matthew's also interpreting the passage. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I want to read this so you can see it. Behold my servant whom I uphold, Isaiah says, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Is it? I'm missing verse 4. Maybe it will come up if I do this. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now we won't get into a lot of specifics of what's not directly quoted here, but we're going to look at a few things. Now it's important to know that Isaiah 42 through Isaiah 53 are made up of what are commonly referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. In this extended passage in Isaiah, God is talking about like we'll see in Matthew 12, 18, and like we saw in Isaiah 42, 1, His servant. God is referring to His servant that He is sending out to do His will. Now it's interesting to note in Isaiah 42 through 53, God kind of goes back and forth in His references when He talks about His servant. It's like He's referring to somebody specific at some points and He's referring to the nation of Israel as His servant at different points in Isaiah 42 through 53. Now, stay with me. Why does that matter? Why would he go back and forth between this coming Messiah, this coming servant, and the nation of Israel as his servant? Hmm. 
I think it could infer a lot of different things. But I think we at least need to think about the connection between Israel, who was the nation that was God's chosen people, and compare them with Jesus, who is the only begotten Son of God. Both were charged with doing God's will. Both were commissioned by God Himself to bring about God's kingdom. One succeeded. The other one didn't. All through the book of Matthew, Jesus has been shown to be the fulfillment of the true completion of God's agenda and plan. Israel was a shadow of this fulfillment, and so God could refer to them, Israel and Jesus, in these servant songs, knowing that Christ would succeed where the nation of Israel failed. So there's a contrast more than than there is a comparison. Jesus contrasted with the nation of Israel. Israel was sent as servant. Jesus was sent as a servant. Jesus succeeded and the nation of Israel did not. That's going to be important as we go forward. So now, Matthew 12, 18, which remember is the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling by healing and telling the healed not to tell other people about Him. Twelve eighteen. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah... Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Okay, so God is saying, like we've seen in Matthew plenty of times before, Behold, means to stop and focus on something or someone to pay special attention to it or them. Kind of like look at a blueprint, specific, detailed instruction. Look, pay attention, this is important, he's saying when he says behold. God says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This person, this servant, is chosen by God directly. Now the word servant here is interesting. In the Greek it's P-A-I-S, pais. It can mean a lot of different things, but here it means that it's a king's attendant. Or possibly, which we know it's true, the king's son. God chose his son to do this job. The Father selects the Son to do the work of the Christ. And just in case you forgot what the Father proclaimed over the Son at His baptism, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Isaiah foretold it. And Matthew retells it. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. It should go without saying, but we need to say it because the Scripture says it. The Father loves the Son. Perfectly. Wholeheartedly. There's no disappointment in this father and son relationship. The father's heart is well pleased with his son. Now, how many of you sitting here this morning would do just about anything to hear their father say that about you? And here, God the father plainly says that the son, his son, his servant is well pleasing to him. So this servant is handpicked by God and is delighted in by God Himself. And then God says that He will put His Spirit upon him. Jesus says something similar in John 3.34. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Now, that's a tough verse. The CEV, the Contemporary English Version, gives us a little clarity in its translation. It says, The Son was sent to speak God's message, and He has been given the full power of God's Spirit. The full power of God's Spirit, without measure. Now get a hold of this. God the Father sends the Son his servant, into the world with the full power of the Spirit of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit have been in perfect communion with each other from eternity past, and that continues in Jesus' earthly ministry, even in His human form. He comes in the full power of the Spirit of God, being the Son of the Father. Now, look at this next clause back here in Matthew twelve eighteen. I will put my Spirit upon Him, and He will proclaim justice to the... Gentiles. Whoa, 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 wait just a second. We've got to pump the brakes here. In Isaiah 42, 1, it said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, Jason mentioned justice this morning. And a coming time of justice when God will justly judge the world. And I think the Israelites would have read this passage in Isaiah, and they were thinking the nations are going to get theirs. They're going to get what they deserve. 
And here God says, my servant whom my spirit rests upon is going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Gentiles, nations, why why is this different here? Well, it is and it's not. It's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Listen, God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis that created the Jewish nation included a segment that said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. The Jews were then set up to bless the whole world, but instead they tended to be insulated from the world instead of impacting it. They saw Gentiles, anybody who was not a Jew, as dogs and considered them unclean and would not go around them if they could keep from it. And if they had to be in their presence, they considered themselves unclean for a period of time until they could purify themselves. But Matthew, again, interpreting Isaiah's words by the same Holy Spirit that inspired Isaiah's words, says that the nations are the Gentiles, and God will use His servant, His Son, to do what? To proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Not in some day in the future, but He's going to do it when He comes. We saw that the Pharisees, the Jewish elite religionists, they started scheming to kill Jesus in what we saw last week and in this week's passage. This shows the enormity of their disdain for Jesus, who was their Messiah, their promised King. The Jews did that. So what will Jesus do? Will Jesus beg them and plead with them to come to Him, to believe in Him, so that they can have the promises of God? God's done that through the whole Old Testament. And that's not what's happening here. Not at this point of God's plan. God's plan, again, interpreted plainly by the Spirit of God, is to turn to the Gentiles now. And that is a huge shift in the economy of God. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus sees the refusal of the Jews, the rejection of the Jews, and is now making a decided turn to any who will come to Him, including the Gentiles. You could almost say Gentiles especially. The servant, God's Son, is sent specifically for that reason, to bring hope, to bring justice to the Gentiles. Now the Jews surely wouldn't see it this way, but God is showing it plainly and will continue to do so throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus' withdrawal and Jesus commanding others to not tell who He is is a direct fulfillment of that prophecy. But we're not done yet. 12.19 And he will, not, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. So this servant of God in this servant song we see here will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. Now, we've seen Jesus rebuke and rebuff plenty of folks at this point, right? But here at this particular time, when the Pharisees are ramping up their attacks on Jesus and are planning on how they can kill Him, we don't see Jesus tramping through the streets of Capernaum, railing against the unfair treatment of the religious elite. He's not shaking His holy fist in anger and demanding His rights. No, He has withdrawn and made His voice extremely localized to a group of rejects, a group of has-beens, and never-will-bees. He's not quarreling or stirring up strife, but is rather removing himself from the streets that would normally receive the cries of those who demand justice for themselves. No one hears Jesus defending himself or demanding that others treat him fairly. He knows what's coming. He knows that Isaiah 53 is coming when he will receive the lashes and the plucking of the beard, when it will be the Father's good pleasure to crush him. And he marches silently toward that appointment. He will not demand his rights and he will not step on the weak to promote himself. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. This servant son is the epitome of meekness in the best way possible. The picture here is that he will not break a bruised reed and he will not quench a smoldering wick. Reeds were everywhere in Israel and they were used in a lot of temporary ways. Writing utensils, musical instruments, toys, and other temporary applications. The problem was they just didn't last. They're flimsy and they give way. They break. They wear out. And then they would be discarded like nothing was lost at all. Big deal, a reed messed up, I'll throw it down and walk away. Well, this servant is one who was so gentle and caring that he would not just walk by a reed that was bent over and snap it for no reason. 
which I'm sure happened all the time. Anybody ever just walk by a tree and you're not even looking at it, you're just like click, click. Like we're walking in the state parks, I'm like, no, don't do that. We're like, they'll put us in jail. We can't move a rock here. Leave no trace. Don't bring it in. <laughs> or you just break something, period, because you're bored or mad. Not Jesus. This servant here did not have the tendency or the propensity in him to even break a bruised reed. How about a candle wick that's about to extinguish itself? Barely smoking. And I've seen some of you here at Advent lick your fingers and... Why would you do that? Makes me look tough. They was girls around and I wanted them to see me being tough. We like to look tough or strong in just these simple ways. You ever just see a bunch of ants and go... <laughs> no? Okay, good. I see, see, I see some nodding heads. Good. I'm like, I'm, maybe I'm demonic. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> we like to exalt ourselves. We like to promote ourselves, even if it's just to ourselves, by doing things like breaking a bruised reed or extinguishing a wick, stepping on some ants. Not Jesus. It wasn't in him at all. God's servant came to serve God, not exalt himself and his reed-breaking, wick-quenching abilities. He was omnipotence in perfect control of himself, devoted completely to the will of God. I only do what I see him doing. I only say what I hear him saying. And that will, God's will, that goal, God's goal, was justice. Justice for the poor, the rich the highly esteemed and the disregarded. And he'll image forth that meekness until justice wins. Until everyone gets what they deserve in the eyes of God. More on that later. For now, let's finish with verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Woo! And boom. Right here at the end of our passage today is a description of of the one who was laying as low as he can at this point and getting ready to turn a corner and branch out to more than just one ethnic group in one little sliver of land in one specific corner of the world. This servant that God has sent is going to offer hope. Yes, hope in his name to the Gentiles. The Gentiles. The dogs, those gross people. Now, if you look back at Isaiah 42, 4, it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. That's not even close, right? Well, it is actually kind of. Again, remember, Matthew is being inspired by the Holy Spirit as much as Isaiah was. And they're not saying anything different from one another. They're not contradicting each other. Where Isaiah was predicting, Matthew is interpreting. And the Spirit is saying through Matthew that the Gentiles hoping in Jesus' name is the fulfillment of there being justice in the earth and the coastlands waiting for God's law. This is the work that God is sending His servant, His Son, to do. And what a work it is. The Jewish audience that Matthew was predominantly writing to had to kind of squirm and wince at this thought. The Jewish Messiah was coming to establish the Jewish way of life, right? He was, but not in the way that they're trusting in. The Jews had, by and large, missed God's call to be a light and blessing to the nations, so God takes matters into His own hands, literally, and sends Jesus as the ultimate hope for everyone. There's not a sinner beyond the infinite reach of your mercy, we sang this morning. And Jesus came to make that true. Jesus is the ultimate hope for everyone, Jews and Gentiles. And Matthew wants his Jewish readers to know that God's plan for God's servant and for God's servants was to bless the nations, all the nations, with His name, His law, His glory. So here at this point in Matthew's gospel, as the Jews were more and more abandoning the Jesus bandwagon, God reminds His people that His plan is for all the nations, all the Gentile-filled nations. 
And we will see, especially when we get into Matthew 13 in a few weeks, that Jesus is taking a more purposeful path around the Jews to reach all who will hear Him, all who will listen to Him, all who are weary and heavy laden so that He can give them rest. And that contingency will come from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jason read that this morning too. Everybody will see. The whole world will see. All the nations, all the Gentiles will see. And so will we. So we're done with the passage, so let's apply it, right? What does it mean for us Gentiles? Anybody Jewish in here? I don't want to bunch in with us. I think we're all Gentile dogs, so bark along with me if you would. For us Gentiles sitting here in 21st century America in rural Appalachia, what does this mean? Turns out it means a lot. This passage gives us a blueprint of sorts for the ministry of Jesus. It kind of outlines who He was and what He did. And it tells us what we're supposed to do. We are not the Messiah. But we are His followers. And it is our goal, our job to be like Him in every way that we can. Right? So this gives us a blueprint. gives us a good set of parameters in how we should operate in the world in our ministry as well. We're not the Christ... But in order to be like Him, we should reflect Him in these ways. Three P's, power, posture, and purpose are our application points. Power, posture, and purpose. first one is power. Where did Jesus get His power? Well, He was God in the flesh, right? What did our passage tell us today, though? When the Father sent Him, what did He do? He caused His Spirit to be upon Him. Without measure. The full power of the Spirit of God rested on the Son of God as He walked around on earth and did what He was doing. Jesus did everything that He was doing in the full power of the Spirit. What should we do? We operate in the power of the Spirit or we're not like Christ at all. When the prophet Zechariah was prophesying, what did he say to the Jews, to Zerubbabel? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now we're not building a temple, but we are doing the work of God. And the only way that we can do the work of God is not by might, not by power, but only by the spirit of God. There's no other way to do the work of God. You say, well, what if I don't have the Spirit? Well, then you're not saved. Watch this. Romans 8. Everything goes back to Romans 8, right? You, however, children of God, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So let's establish this up front before we move forward in this passage. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not born again. You don't have to pray and tarry and wait and hope that God gives you the Spirit sometime later in your experience. You said, but, 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 but I should pray and I should ask. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And listen to this, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the good news of the gospel. When I was born again, God caused His Spirit to rest on me, to live in me. Now, do I always walk in the full power of that Spirit? No, I'm in flesh and sin lives in my flesh and I fight it day and night, hopefully. And I fight it imperfectly and sometimes I follow my flesh instead of the Spirit. Jesus didn't have that problem. So I need to be crying out to God not to give me the Spirit, but to help me to walk in the power of the Spirit so that I will deny the deeds of the flesh. 
Do you wonder if God wants to share His Spirit with you? Luke 11. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a, a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You say, well, you just said I didn't have to ask for the Spirit. You have to ask for the Spirit to be born again. And it is God's good pleasure to give His Spirit to His children. And we have to figure out what it means to operate in the power of the Spirit if we're going to walk with God and do His will and be like Jesus. And everybody's like, oh, that sounds crazy and mystical and weird. It's a little mystical. It's a little weird. And completely worth it. And we don't fully understand it because guess what? We ain't God. But God has caused His Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to work in us and through us for His glory, to reveal Himself to us and to reveal Himself through us. It has to be done in the power of the Spirit. That's the way Jesus did it. That's the way we have to do it. A great book study for this is Galatians. Galatians talks and calls us to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit in order to not live in or by the flesh. We have to know, follow, and rely on the Spirit of God if we're going to be like Jesus. So the first point was power, and we're talking about the Spirit. There is no power in the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit of God. So if we're going to be like Jesus, we have to walk in the power of the Spirit. Power. Second second application point is posture. Jesus didn't break bruised reeds or extinguish smoking wicks. And he had all the power in the universe. Jesus was the perfect picture of meekness. Now Jesus was certainly brazen and bold when he needed to be, but toward the weak and the lowly, he was meek and gentle. We should be too. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 a few weeks ago? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I don't know that there's much sweeter word in Scripture than that word rest. And it comes when you see that Jesus is meek, and lowly, and offering himself to you freely because you're tired. The other thing I see here as far as posture and Jesus being meek, Jesus was not promoting himself to try to impress others. Matter of fact, he told people not to tell people who he was, right? So how's that apply to us? Stop trying to promote yourself to impress other people or to impress yourself. Anybody guilty of that? Anybody check your social media 28 times a day to see who liked you, liked your post, who's following me now? Whoa, that post got 68 likes. I'm going to do something like that again. Why? Because I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm important. I want people to see a bunch of thumbs up and hearts and laugh emojis because that's so important in our culture. Don't be that person. Am I saying don't enjoy social media? I'm not. I've got a Facebook account, a Twitter account, an Instagram account, a Snapchat account that I haven't seen in like four years, so I think it may be deactivated. I've got a Pinterest account that I look at twice a year. I'm not anti-social media, but we are so promoting ourselves there. Are we not? Look at me. Look at my perfect family. Look at this beautiful food I prepared. Stop taking pictures of your food. That's not biblical. That's just me. That's a preference of mine, okay? That's not like Jesus. That's like Jason, okay? (laughs) It's a silly culture that we live in. I mean, it's silly. And we want to promote ourselves in the midst of it. We want other people to be impressed with us and to like us. Stop it. Just stop it. Just stop it. I'll put you in a box. (laughs) 
Stop relying on others' evaluation of you. You should rely on God's evaluation of you. And He has placed us in Christ. And in Christ, He is well pleased with us. You know who's hardest on us? We are. I am. God must be mad at me. God must be upset with me. I suck. I'm terrible. Should I say suck in the pulpit? I said it. I, 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 me, me, me. Oh, I'm a jerk. Oh, I'm a... And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son whom I sent my servant to die for. And God's evaluation of you is, I am well pleased. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Why don't you trust his evaluation of you more than you trust other people's evaluation, more than you trust your own evaluation of yourself? I hear people in therapy all the time saying, I just can't forgive myself. I'm like, so God can and you can't. You've transgressed His holy will and He can forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. Get over yourself. Posture is our application point. Be meek. Don't rely on other people to build you up and and make you feel good. Look at God and what God says about you. And finally, don't let the prevailing tide of the culture determine who you are. Contrast the Pharisees' evaluation of Jesus. We're going to kill Him. To God's evaluation of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What matters more? Meekness says, I know who I am in Christ and I will love and serve other people regardless of my evaluation of myself or their evaluation of me. The posture of the Christian is shown clearly. Paul says this, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. What if we lived like that, free from the fear of men's faces? That would free us up to love men better. I can't love somebody that I'm bitter toward because they don't like me. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Christ in His meekness loved men, revealed Himself to men, and didn't fight for His rights and say, y'all don't know who I am, I'm God, y'all. Don't tell anybody. Just trust me. Power, posture, finally purpose. What was... Jesus' purpose in our passage today. He was going to bring justice to the Gentiles. He was going to bring hope to the Gentiles. Our purpose as Christians, our purpose as followers of Jesus is to bring hope to the hopeless. We are to bring hope through our ministry and our ministering, just like Jesus did. Hope to who? The downcast, the downtrodden, the outcasts, the people who are forgotten, the disgusting people, the least of these. Anybody ever seen somebody that had no hope? It's paralysis. You can't do anything. You can't move forward. You can't go backwards. There's just no hope. There's no reason for anything. We as Christians, as we preach the gospel and live out the life of Christ in us and through us by the power of the Spirit, in meekness, extend hope to people. And it is so empowering. Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I can make it through anything because I have an eternal hope. This is not the end. As good as this is sometimes, it's not what's best. As bad as this is sometimes, it's not the end. The end of the story literally is happily ever after. 
And the author's not asleep waiting until it works out. He's active in me, in you, in us, giving hope to the cast off, bringing hope to the Gentiles. Who can Jesus save? There is no sinner beyond the infinite reach of your mercy. The world is standing up with their hands on their heads this week going, Kanye West. Y'all listen to that album? Yorta. That ain't my flavor. Chick-fil-A. But it's awful good. I believe Kanye West has been radically saved by a holy God. I believe Kanye West has seen the hope that is found through the Messiah. And I should be more shocked that God saved me than that He saved Kanye. I was without hope in the world. And He extended His grace to me. I was in active rebellion against Him. I hated Him. And I didn't shake my fist at Him and say, I hate you, God. But I loved me so much that it showed clearly that I hated God. And He called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That's hope. And we extend that hope to everybody that we come in contact with. Is everybody that we come in contact going to be saved? No. And I continue to extend that hope to everybody that I come into contact with. Hope for justice. Not just justice in the here and now, but ultimate complete justice before the throne of God. Jason talked about that this morning. And listen, justice will be served in eternity. You say, I don't want justice, I want grace. Well, justice gives you grace. Justice will either be served in hell for those who aren't found in Christ, or justice will be found in those who spend eternity with God because they're found in Christ, placed there by the work of God through the death of Christ, who bore the punishment for my sins on the cross as an act of grace, and justly... God can allow me, not just allow me into heaven, but welcome me into heaven and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope that we have. What a hope! So we walk in the power of the Spirit. We walk in the posture of meekness. And we serve God and serve other people with the purpose of hope, just like Jesus did. That's our goal. And we want to extend that hope to everybody that we possibly can. Let's pray. God, your plan is perfect, your way is perfect, and you are in the heavens and you do what you please. And we trust you, God. You've revealed yourself through the work of Christ, through the person of Christ. And now, God, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us and through us as your Spirit operates in us to make us more like Jesus, as we walk in meekness, and as we extend hope to the least of all those around us. As we extend hope to sinners among whom we were the chief. Thank you for the person and work of Jesus the perfect person and work of Jesus. Thank you for showing us this picture of him in this passage today. And God, may we show the world this same picture as we go out and live our lives. Again, God, if there be somebody here now in this place who does not know you as their Lord, convict them of their sins. Show them their need for righteousness. Show them the wrath that is coming against the sons of disobedience. And may they flee, may they run into the safety of the person of Christ. Confess Him as Lord and trust Him to save them from their sins. Only you can do that, God, and we ask that you would do it. Thank you for these people, this place, and this time, and ask that as we sit down and eat lunch, God, that it would be blessed by you as well. And may we go out and do it, not just talk about it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? And Don read this this morning. It's so awesome the way God works us out. We didn't conspire. God, God ambushed us. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will 
working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, you're dismissed, but standing with us. You're not dismissed.